This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate has teamed up with counterparts in Israel. The goal of this program, now in its seventh year, is to fund the discovery of what it calls advanced solutions for mission-critical homeland security needs. For How It All Works, the Director of Industry Partnerships in the Office of Innovation and Collaboration, Megan Mayle. Ms. Mayle, good to have you on. Good to be here. All right, tell us about this program, what it is you're trying to develop, first of all. What, what do you hope for each year as the outcomes of this program? Sure. So our uh, joint relationship with the Israel Ministry of Public Security is to jointly develop commercial solutions that will have an impact both in Israel and the U.S. So we have certain priority areas. The Israeli government has certain priority areas, and we know there's a lot of overlap. And we know there's a lot of innovation happening in both countries. Yeah, I imagine Russia is part of the overlap in these current times. But when you say advanced technologies, in other words, this is a grant program for people that apply and develop things that you are seeking? Correct. So the Bird Foundation, we provide funding to the Bird Foundation, uh, which was jointly initiated by the U.S. and Israeli governments. And they award grants to partnerships between a U.S. entity and an Israeli entity. And BIRD, of course, stands for Binational Industrial Research and Development Foundation. And what are the priority areas this year? Can you go into some detail on those? So we on the DHS science and technology side, we make sure that our priorities map to our end user capability gaps. So the things we're seeing from DHS components. And then we talk about those with our Israeli counterparts to see what they're focused on. And so this year, the call for proposals that's open right now focuses on advanced first responder technologies, combating cybercrime, border protection, safe and secure cities, securing critical infrastructure and unmanned aerial systems. Yeah, that pretty much covers the gamut of all of the DHS component missions and and then some. And who is a typical grantee here? These are academic institutions or can corporations apply and who can get in on this? We find a lot of small businesses are interested in it. They do partner with academic institutions. I think we're looking for people who are interested in taking some risks and people who are interested in commercializing technologies as well. And these grants, what size are they? Are they million-dollar level, $10,000 development? I mean, these programs often have a wide range of sizes that go out. Correct. The grants are up to $1 million per project, which is funding up to 50% of the combined budget that the companies contribute. And who comes up with the ideas? In other words, do you tell them, we just need some ideas in unmanned systems, or do you have more specific reach out that you send to them? So that's a really interesting part here is we keep it very broad. Those lists of topics that I rattled off a couple seconds ago, that's it. That's the call for proposals. We really want to hear the unique ideas. We don't want to be too prescriptive about what we're looking for. And how do you get to the right people with notice of this? Because it's kind of what we don't know situation. You know, it could be a really niche area. We want to find partnerships in both countries. I want to make sure that as many people are aware of this program as possible. That's why interviews like this are great, because I want new people who haven't heard of this before. And if a U.S. company is hearing this, you don't have to have an Israeli partner right now. The Bird Foundation actually does quite a bit of matchmaking, and they will listen to an individual's capabilities and try to partner with another company that they know of on the other side. 
Right. So two grantees could come up with something that someone in the middle, like the Bird Foundation, says, wow, if we combine these, we could really develop something and they play matchmaker. Correct. So they'll bring the companies together, the entities together, and then they can jointly work on a proposal and, you know, bring their two disparate technologies into one solution. We're speaking with Megan Mayle. She's Director of Industry Partnerships in the Office of Innovation and Collaboration at the DHS Science and Technology Directorate. And give us an example of some things that have been produced by this program in the past. Sure. So we have a technology that was developed by Blue White Robotics in Israel and Easy Aerial in the U.S. to uh, different companies. They developed a control and command center for drones, for multi-use drones. So basically you can enable simultaneous operation of multiple drones and then you can perform uh, different types of missions with one aerial view. And testing has been used in Israel to locate trapped people and assess damage to buildings, as an example. And the output of the grantees is what, an idea, a blueprint, a plan, or is it sometimes a product or a prototype? We're really focusing on commercial solutions. So we really want to see an actual technology that could be brought to market in both the U.S. and Israel. So a lot of the grants will include testing by a U.S. partner on the government or an Israeli partner within their government to really see how this would be used by end users. And then the companies focus a great deal on getting their commercial solution out in both or either countries. So could they have a solution already in commercial use, say it's something to deliver pizzas? It turns out this drone technology could do something else that's important to national security, and it would be almost a technology reuse as opposed to something new. Would that qualify? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're not looking for basic research ideas. We're looking for things that can be tweaked, given a little bit of attention and a new use case, uh, really come up with a great new solution. And what if new patents come out of this? Are they able to patent the thing? And how does the intellectual property get handled if, say, FEMA decides they'd like to buy 10,000 of it at some point? The companies retain all of the intellectual property. The foundation doesn't take any, and we don't either. There's usually limited government use rights that are associated with it, but the companies are responsible for any of the intellectual property. Now, you're science and technology directorate, but this is done on behalf of the many components of DHS. I presume that includes even the Coast Guard, too. So how does the idea get known to the people you think it might apply to, or do they send in ideas in the first place? We do a lot of engagement with our components to understand where their requirements are and how they line up. And then also we bring in subject matter experts as part of proposal reviews. So we're reviewing on the government side all of the grant ideas that are coming in to really see how they will fit into our operations. So we want those end users involved up front. And I just wanted to ask a detailed question. One of the areas you mentioned is border security. Give us an example of what might have come up in the past because border security takes so many forms. It takes human intervention. It sometimes takes walls, if that's the bent of the administration. And over the years, there have been many, many attempts at making technological walls with surveillance and cameras and sensors and so forth. What is the state of the art there now? So we've left that intentionally broad. One example might be a project that was done on video analytics and security for remote sites. So you could see how that might be applied to a border situation. But we like to leave it intentionally broad because border means very different things, both in the U.S. and in Israel. And could it also, say, continuing with the border idea, 
Could it extend beyond simply interdiction or stopping of people? Could it also be solutions for handling people that might be in the centers that DHS operates for people that are refugees or people that are illegal crossers or whatever the case might be? Sometimes they're housed for a while. And could it be technologies to help in that part of the mission? We haven't seen any specific projects proposed or worked on in that area to date. But again, there's nothing in the call that speaks one way or the other on that. And in the first responder, again, just a detail because it comes to mind, I imagine 5G and deployment of that might be something that people are looking at now. Sure. Yeah, we're absolutely interested in all advanced technology systems. We've done a lot of indoor positioning and locating technologies. A lot of the drone technologies have first responder use cases as well. That's all we need is 5G drones. Nobody will be able to hide at all. And just give us the uh, timelines and deadlines for this year's round. Sure. So our current call for proposals is open until April 25th, and that is actually seeking executive summaries. There'll be a down select that's done by the foundation, and proposals will be invited to be received by June 27th. And then we'll be making decisions on those by the beginning of September. And by the way, who makes the decisions? DHS ST and Israeli Ministry of Public Security. We jointly prioritize which grants we would like to see move forward, and we actually pitch those to the Byrd Board of Governors, which is made up of U.S. and Israel government folks. Megan Mayle is Director of Industry Partnerships in the Office of Innovation and Collaboration at the DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at. I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching you. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.